Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening from a very slick South Dakota. Oh, my gosh. It has been, though, like, I know that I live in North Dakota, and so I expect things like, you know, when I walk out of my house, the air is going to hurt my face. That I have wrapped my head around. I did not expect to go on an ice skating adventure trying to drive from my house (laughs) over to my (laughs) shop. It was ridiculous. And so far as I understand it, we are just at the beginning of the winter storm. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets a lot better. Yeah, you know what? The governor actually tweeted down here, hey, pay attention to this storm. Like, this one's serious. And the uh, the Sioux Falls police were telling people, don't go on the roads. Like, the 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 main highway might be okay, but all of the off-ramps and stuff like that are just a mess. So we just kind of sheltered in place and watched the rain slash ice <laughs> kind of like, I'm not really sure what it is, but by the time Sweet. it hits something, it's ice. <laughs> Did, is this the first time that you've been in South Dakota where there's been like extremely bad weather? Did you go through some of that last year? Well, I guess it depends on what bad weather you means to you, right? Like this is just sleet. We've been we were dumped with snow last year. We've been we've gotten a pile of snow this year. So I mean, um, and we've had windstorms that you know ripped out half of my trees and. Yeah, I've, I've seen lots of weather, so I guess it depends on what you consider bad. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully uh, nothing bad will happen as we dig through feedback tonight, eh? Absolutely. All right. Our first feedback comes in uh, from Gary. Gary writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I love listening every week. Most Linux shows went to fluff, but yours? I always learn something new. Thank you. Two questions. One, hey, first of all, I don't know if we allow two questions, do we? I guess we will. The first, a while back you mentioned IR remotes. Logitech was mentioned, and though not your favorite, I think because you needed more, my needs are simple, and the Logitech 650 Harmony remote is perfect for my needs. But they don't make them anymore. I have two that are programmed the same. One has a bad key. Eventually, they will go bad. Do you have any recommendations for a Logitech replacements at the same price range, $150 or thereabouts? So I guess here... One of the things I'm not really so so bent on having to have something new. I'm pretty okay if you need something that's used. I, I think that's that's an okay thing to do. Um, so you might consider just purchasing the same remote off of eBay and then following up and saying, "Hey, I'll dig in there and uh, you know just re, you know get one with the button that isn't broken and then reprogram it." My concern with Harmony largely comes down to their software and the fact that you have to use their software to program it. And then the the fact that it doesn't always work very well or their macros didn't really work very well is kind of an aside. Um, but you 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 very much might consider uh, just purchasing a used one if you're if you're in the Harmony market and it works well for you and you don't have a reason to leave. If you're open to other options, and again, I don't know how many of these you're going to find brand new either. Maybe this is something you might eBay as well. 
but universal remote controls. So URC has made a number of different remote controls over the years, and I think they do all of the same things that uh, Logitech does. I just think they do them a little better. Uh, and so you might check out the the URC 450, and the URC 450 is going to be pretty close to your Harmony, I would think. You can find them used on eBay uh, for about thirty-five to forty dollars. Um, if you want them new with the, you know, all the programming stuff, um, they might you might see them as high as one hundred and fifty dollars. And then you can even get uh, what's known as a little RF base. And so again, one of the things I like about it, you can take this remote and it will communicate RF back to its base station. But then the base station has little IR blasters that will go on all of your equipment. And so you have the opportunity to still communicate with the equipment over IR, but you don't suffer any of the downsides of IR because your remote is communicating to the base effectively through RF. Um, so that, that might be where I would go with, uh, with that, with the remote, and it's going to be in that $150 price range. But again, if you're, if, if you have harmony, if harmony works for you and you just want to stay there, Go used. Second question. I was wondering if anyone else has this issue. I have a System76 desktop with Kubuntu 2004 and 2204 with its Logitech, again, uh, keyboard and mouse using their own dongle. When the machine sleeps, I usually have to press the power button to wake it. This is good. From time to time, it will decide to wake up if I bump the mouse or a key press. I once I, I once had a fix by writing into a USB section of slash sys and it worked sort of after a reboot paths to the USB devices changed ending up in a tossing of the script. I'd prefer not to wake up so easy. Any idea what I might be doing and how I can get it to ignore the peripherals in the BIOS mouse and keyboard wake is set to disable. Thank you so much. So I have to tell you, Steve. If I was looking to disable my mouse or keyboard from waking the device up and I came across an option inside of my UEFI options that said wake on keyboard and mouse and I disabled that option, I would very much walk away from that experience thinking that I've disabled the ability for the computer to wake up by shaking the mouse or tapping the keyboard, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, sometimes the computers are unpredictable. Like the BIOS options may specify one thing, but at, at some point... If it's not a, a BIOS call to put the computer to sleep, but rather it's it's working at the kernel level. So there are different levels of sleep in your computer, and I, I don't know which one, which level of sleep the computer goes to when you suspend it. But if it's not using the hardware suspend, and instead it's using one of the higher level sleeps that the kernel is controlling, that's where I think the BIOS is just kind of circumvented. Yeah, absolutely. So you you might uh, I don't even know where you would go about trying to I don't even know what where you would go to look to find what that's happening. I suppose you'd go through the the logs of what's happening when it's going to sleep. And I suppose to a degree he's kind of figured out where the problem is because he found uh, his, his answer in slash sys. It's just that when, you know, the 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 whatever the UUID or the peripheral changes, then he's back to square one again. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a tricky one. Like if, if a, a script in slash sys is doing it, then it seems to me that we're at a higher level sleep that the kernel is controlling and we're yeah. not getting down to the BIOS level. Right, right. So um, I'm sorry we don't have a better answer for you. One of the one of the one of the things you have going for you, though, is the fact that you are uh, in systems or that you have a system 76. So you have the opportunity to reach out for them to support and they might be able to help you. Um, so. Yeah, I, I might reach out to them and see if they have some ideas for you. If they, 
they might know. And if not, they might have a connection to somebody inside of the community. Now, if you're listening to this and you say, ooh, I know, I know, I know how to fix Gary's problem, write into live at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to have you help Gary. We'd love to get him an answer. Our second email comes in from Heath. Heath writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. I'm looking to set up an email backup management solution at home. I wanted to download mail from my ISP, Gmail, and Outlook, then store the messages locally as a backup on the cloud versions. I also want the solution to have some sort of automatic rules to delete advertising emails after a few days so I don't have to keep all the notifications from eBay, Facebook, etc. when they're no longer relevant and keep my inboxes better managed. I was considering setting up a spare machine with Thunderbird for this. However, I thought I'd ask if there's a solution. I could use an existing server. I have a file server running OpenMediaVault on top of Debian and another server with Nextcloud on top of Ubuntu. Are there CLI tools that I could use for this purpose and manage it over, over SSH? Heath. So, Steve, what say you? What, what is his solution here? Hmm. This is, a, this is an interesting one. I haven't tried to do something like this uh, personally. When I, when I was backing up email, I was running a Zimbra, cloud, uh, Zimbra server somewhere out there in the Internet. And I ran that for years. And so I had a backup script that I would kick off from my desktop machine and essentially it would go out to the server, dump the email, pull it back onto a share that would then get backed off, you know, via my backup policy. I never really tried to do this via like a Gmail or an Outlook type situation. And I also didn't do anything to purge specific emails. So I guess I would think of some sort of script might be able to do this, but I honestly have no idea how I would do this. I, w- I would probably set up filters to get rid of those uh, notifications for those various advertising emails because I don't want those to notify me anyways. Mm. So my my first step would be shove these all in a folder somewhere and don't tell me when they show up. Right. Uh, and I'll go look at this if I feel like it. Um, that would be step one for me. And then you could have your sync solution just not pull that folder down or maybe pull it down because maybe you want to store it. I'm not really sure. What would you do? I, you know, I, I, I wonder if a person could not set the rules up in Thunderbird to, Hey, go ahead and pull these and either put them into a folder, like you say, or I mean, why not just trash them? I mean, at least for me, I have rarely ever, 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 ever gone into my email and went, oh, somebody posted something on Facebook. I should go in there and look at like it doesn't happen like that. If I'm going to go on Facebook, I'm going to go on Facebook. If I'm in my email, it's because I'm looking for something that was explicitly said to me. So I a lot of those advertisement slash notification emails, I don't think are terribly useful, although I guess I could see it in the way of, hey, I purchased this thing on eBay. Be really nice to have tracking. eBay tells me that they're providing me with tracking. And they sent me an email. It's kind of nice to know that the item ships. I guess I could kind of see it in some specific circumstances, but I'm inclined to agree with you. Filters would get you an awful long way. I uh, <laughs> I had a, this is a funny story. I had a client that installed a bunch of smart thermostats and thought it would be cute to put my email address in the notification thing for these things. And it hit like a low humidity thing. So I just set my Thunderbird filter to when you get an email from the stupid thing, I don't want to see it. So forward it back to the business owner, then delete it from my email box. And <laughs> uh, as far as I know, that didn't take too long before they uh, before we quote unquote resolve that issue. 
Our third email comes in from Brandon. Brandon writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I have a few clients that prefer to pay me to manage their online accounts, such as Office 365, Cloudflare, G Suite, etc. I'm doing my best to avoid linking these accounts together, but as the number grows, it's becoming a pain to dedicate browsers and incognito windows to manage them. I've tried a Firefox plugin to help manage profiles, but it has some challenges. For example, Firefox will only sync to the last profile you've used or logged into with Firefox Sync. Additionally, after using the plugin, I've noticed that once in a while, Firefox is unable to get to the internet without restarting all open profile sessions. Ideally, I'd like to be able to build a browser profile for each client and then back it up for sharing between machines. In this way, when the browser goes to a website, the only history shortcuts, etc., is for that current profile. Do you run into the same thing with managing online accounts for multiple clients? Do you have a suggestion for keeping online accounts isolated, and the flexibility to synchronize everything between machines? Thanks for all you do in the community and taking the time to read my question. Brandon. So, uh, Steve, I know you've used a couple of containers and add-ons. What would, what would you do if you woke up in Brandon's shoes? Well, so I never had to solve the problem of like trying to sync these across various machines. But the one thing that I did when I have a lot of different client uh, demands like this is I actually do a Podman run on a Firefox container and just name it per the client. And then I just fire up that container with the Firefox in it. And then I don't have to worry about profiles, you know, munging together or anything like that because they're isolated in their own network namespace and all the rest of that. If you're not inclined to manage things in that level, I am aware of a plugin for Firefox that's called, it's called multi-account containers. And I think it's exactly what you're looking for. It, the idea here is like in their demo, they have a container for work, for shopping, for banking, for Facebook and so on. And each one of these containers can have ca like tabs and things like that assigned to them. And they are meant to keep things completely separate. Uh, I'm not sure how the syncing works, but the idea here is that you're supposed to be able to log into multiple accounts on a single website at the same time. So they, they specifically call out, you know, a personal Gmail account and a work Gmail account. You can log into them in the same browser, but give each one of those its own container inside of the browser. So that might help you. I, I don't know how it works with, with, uh, syncing specifically, like they say that the sync feature allows you to, um, quote, align multi-account across different computers. Haven't tried it. Don't know. Like I've never had that. I'm either on the road and on my laptop or I'm at home on my desktop. And either way, it's not very hard for me to just pick up a container and uh, plunk it somewhere else. So I haven't really had to do that, but I would suspect this, this multi-account containers um, thing from Mozilla. It's, we'll have a link in the show notes. It's right on their like it's right in their support website of like, how do I do this? So I don't think this is even a community thing. I think this is, you know, right from Mozilla themselves. Very cool. I've absolutely run into this, Brandon. Um, obviously manage a number of different clients. Many of them use G Suite, Office 365 and the like. Uh, my solution is far less elegant. Um, I've given up trying to manage any particular client. And a part of that is my business is just at the point where I'm rarely at the same client two days in a row. In fact, I'm rarely at the same client two times in a week or a month. Uh, and so I'm bouncing all over the place. And these days, my job primarily resolves around 
when somebody gets in over their head or needs a little bit of extra hands or needs, we just need to grease the wheels a little bit. I step into that role um, and I'm not the primary contact for any of these things. And so to that end, uh, and I've run my laptop this way for a long time, I don't keep any history whatsoever. So my laptop, Firefox is configured to dump history every time I close the browser. And I started this practice after I read Kevin Mitnick's book, Ghost in the Wire, in which he exemplifies that legal precedent says you can be charged with a crime for removing data from your computer, even if at the time that you removed the data from the computer, you didn't yet know that it would be used in a future case as evidence. The court has ruled that if you do that, if you dump your Internet history, and somewhere down the road, they say, hey, we want that Internet history and you've removed it. You can actually be charged with tampering of evidence. And he has a couple of cases to exemplify that. Uh, and he says the, the, the best legal way out of that is just don't keep history to begin with. Now, that's where the practice started. But I'll tell you how it applies to your particular situation. Office 365 is just a bear when it comes into the stupid cookies that get into your system and just won't get out. And you can tell that Microsoft is at least tangentially aware of this because when you sign out of Office 365, what is the first message that pops up? Hey, it's a good idea to close all your browser tabs to make sure you're completely signed out. And if you don't do that, if you try to go back to office.com and sign in with a different account, what you'll find is you'll find yourself right back in the first account that you signed out of. So don't like it at all, have had nothing but trouble with it. And so as a part of that, when I sit down to work at a client, I open my browser, I open my our ticketing system, and that has our company knowledge base as well as all of the client-specific notes in it. And I and and between that, a password manager and a web browser, every time I need a resource, if I need to sign into their office credentials, I go into their password database. I look up the admin account for their account and I sign into it. And then when I close the browser, I start all over. And it's a little bit more work that way. The ones that I do do on any sort of consistent basis are saved in my personal uh, uh, Bitwarden account. So. I Again, I'm starting with a fresh browser, but I just click on the account I want and Bob's your uncle signs me in. So it gets me to a lot of the same place that you do, but I get it. If you're coming back and you're wanting to pick up where you left off, obviously not very ideal. So does that, um, do you have any problems signing in and out of things or is it like, is this the sole downside here having to remember to type URLs because you're storing things in, let's say, Bitwarden? Like yep. if I was to pull this into myself, uh, I may have the Bitwarden plugin and all of my passwords in there nice and secured, but none of my links are there. So I have to know which websites I want to go to. Correct. That is the only downside. And even that, to be honest with you, Steve. So like, I'll give you an example. I'm going to make up a client, uh, Steve's Great Widgets LLC. Okay. So congratulations. You're the owner of Steve's Widgets LLC. And if I if you signed up for G Suite and said, here, can you manage this? I will just create an I'll just create an entry in Bitwarden called Steve's Widgets LLC admin. And then when I want to sign into to I don't actually want to go to Google.com and click on or you know workspace and then go to admin interface. I just want to go to admin.google.com and sign into G Suite, right? So I can link the exact place where I log in and I don't ever spend time looking at the URL. I just type in the thing I'm trying to log into and I use Bitwarden's feature to take me to that site then it automatically fills in, then I'm signed in. And that, I can tell you for sure, that works flawlessly with G Suite and Office 365. Um, and I, again, I, I, there isn't a day that goes by that I'm not at least in three or four different accounts, and I bounce between them all the time. And my, my protocol is just, when I leave, I have two things open. I have my VS Codium workspace that's open, 
And I have a web browser that's dedicated for that thing. And so I'm notating what I'm doing and documenting what I'm doing in one window. And I'm actively working in the browser, the terminal elsewhere. And so when I leave, doc gets saved, upload to a C file so that it syncs to the rest of my team and they know what I was doing. And then I close out of the web browser and I'm ready to start a fresh session. But I've really, 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 really doubled down on this idea that I treat my computers like cattle, not like special snowflakes. And so I from time to time, and I've, I've been going like maybe a few months in between here before I just blow the OS away and start over. And I, I just get very, very lean and intentional about, I want Firefox, Thunderbird, VS Codium, Element, and uh, uh, Firefox. That's it. And I can do all of my work in those applications and console. And I can do all of my work inside of those applications. And so having everything either in a password manager or in some sort of a ticketing system keeps me free of that. Our fourth email comes in from Heidi. Heidi writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I caught your live broadcast of the Ask Noah show, and I was thrilled to see the same enthusiasm, even more as before. My, my, the last segment really touched me, since I, too, have freed many people from the clutches of Microsoft's Minecraft and to Mindtest. Could it be possible that maybe we could even reach out to the Mindtest founder, Peru Ahola, and see if he would be a guest on the Ask Noah show? I see Mindtest also has LibrePay and Mastodon, and she links to both of those. We'll keep following the show now. I just hope, I, I just hope it would be on the air more often. Thanks, Heidi. So, Heidi, we really appreciate it. We appreciate you being a listener. Um, what I would tell you is at some point later in life, as I'm moving into to, to a more full-time broadcasting role, um, the, the Ask Noah show very well may expand, but right now still kind of working on getting critical thought worked out. Um, so... I would love to be there more often. As far as mind test goes, I appreciate you writing in. I suspected that that might strike a chord between a couple of people because we care about kids and we care about our ability to have freedom in the software packages that we're using. And that just fundamentally isn't there. And actually, really, Steve, it was you that pointed me towards mind test in the first place saying, hey, I don't think this is really missing a whole lot from the Minecraft version. Yeah, I mean, that was where my kids started. So uh, we... We limit the kind of influence that the big corporations can have just as a general rule over our kids, just similar to the line that you you and your wife took. And so the other issue is like we, we can have each a copy of mind test and not cost any money. I can run my own server and it runs across the tablets and everybody played together like the four of us would play together. Whereas with with uh, he now has Minecraft because of his his godfather and that means that everybody else can't play with him. So, you know, there's there's definitely pluses and minuses there. I have definitely seen some things in, in Minecraft that I would be nice to have in, in Mind Test. But overall, I had I played both for significant periods of time and I like Mind Test just fine. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the week in review with JT. The adoption of open source in the financial services industry is on the rise, according to FinTech Open Source Foundation, which has released a report claiming that 87% of financial services professionals believe open source is valuable to the future of financial services. Experimenters have discovered that OpenAI's new chatbot, ChatGPT, can hallucinate simulations of Linux shells and roleplay dialing into a bulletin board service. The chatbot, based on a deep learning AI model, uses its stored knowledge to simulate Linux with surprising results, including executing Python code and browsing virtual websites. CIQ, the company behind Rocky Linux, expands its open source expertise with two new hires, 
Zane Hamilton, who joined CIQ as Vice President over Sales Engineering, was previously with Red Hat as a cloud sales specialist and Verizon as a Director of Cloud Strategy and Integration. Justin Burdine, who also joined CIQ, will be the Director of Solutions Engineering and was previously a Senior Manager of Specialist Solutions Architects for Red Hat. Alma Linux, a popular free Linux distribution derived from RHEL, has received a vote of confidence from the European and American science communities. CERN, the European Center for Nuclear Research based in Switzerland, and the Fermi National Laboratory, Fermilab, based in Illinois, have told researchers they will offer Alma Linux as the standard Linux distribution for experiments at their facilities. ActiveState, the company behind the Komodo IDE, has decided to end development of the software. However, as one of their last efforts, they've released all of the Komodo IDE source code as open source. The creator of Homebrew has raised almost $9 million for a new protocol called T to help open source developers get paid using Web3 digital contracts. Researchers at Trend Micro have discovered a new cryptojacking malware family that uses the Chaos Remote Administration tool to take over a victim's computer while also installing XMR rig crypto mining malware. The tool can infect both Windows and Linux systems. Intel has submitted a bunch of new Compute Express Link code for the Linux 6.2 kernel. Unciv, the open source remake of Civilization 5, is heading to Steam. Offensive Security has released Kali Linux 2022.4, the fourth and final version of 2022, with new Azure and QEMU images, six new tools, and an improved desktop experience. OpenShot has released version 3.0 of their video editor after over 12 months in development and with more than 1,000 improvements and fixes. Blender 3.4 has been released. Digicam 7.9 has also been released. KDE Gear 22.12 has come out with improvements to Dolphin, Gwenview, Kate, Calendar, KDE Connect, and other applications. Tor Browser 12.0 has been released with multi-locale support based on Firefox 102 ESR. Qt6 will come with a native Wayland interface namespace. Chaos 2022.12 is out with a new Linux 6.0 kernel, an improved ZFS installation, and a Plasma 6 preview. Rocky Linux 9.1 has been released, and the Linux 6.1 kernel has been released as an LTS with initial support for the Rust programming language. And Linux hardware vendor System76 has announced a new generation of their launch configurable keyboard, the Launch Heavy, which comes with new features and is full size. Technology is something that we spend time on for fun or recreation. A lot of us work in the industry, and so it's a source of income. But sometimes technology can impact lives. And that's certainly the case with a new service called St. Vincent de Paul. You can learn more at stdepaul.org. Now, it's called St. Vincent de Paul Assistance Center, and it's named after St. Uh, St. Vincent de Paul because he's known for having dedicated his entire life to helping the poor. And so the founder of this site, Michael Johnson, said he had the idea for the project when he was trying to think of a way that web infrastructure could help cities build physical infrastructure. And so he started to think more broadly and thought about how many people in the community are struggling and could be helped if they only knew about services in their area. And so he decided to create this site called St. DePaul that can be a solution to the problem and other problems to reduce homelessness and reduce poverty. Now, the great thing about this is the entire site from top to bottom is completely open source, free and open source. He publishes the source code and he invites people to come make changes. And so if you have a better idea of how the site can work, you can uh, go over to a site and you can make a suggestion. 
It's very much a location-based service. It's kind of like Craigslist. And people can get help from outside of their communities. Currently, it's in the works. He's going to get messaging up and running, reviews, commenting. But he just wanted to share where he's at now in the process as he kind of launches this and drives some attention. And so, first of all, if it's open source and it's working well and it's serving somebody, it it hits my list and checks my boxes and I want to talk about it and I want to draw attention to it on the show. But this in specific, again, I think what is different about this as opposed to some of the other projects we talk about is this has a real a direct real impact on people that need help. And so I went over to a site and I, I checked it out and I actually we do IT support for a food pantry. And so I attempted to enroll them in the system. I'm not sure how successful I was or not. I did get an error when I tried to do it, but you go to stdepaul.org and right on their front site, it says, what kind of help do you need? And then it gives you a list of options to choose from. And so you can choose from things like food, housing or rent assistance, entry-level jobs, developing a skill for a better job, mental health services, rehab services, help for applying for government social services or scholarships. And so as I look through all of those things, if you've ever used something like Get Together um, or Meetup, these are services that allow you to discover other groups of local interest or 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 interest in your local area. But nothing like this has ever exists that I know of in the open source world for people that are looking for services and or that need help. And so the fact that this can be done in an entire open source way is incredibly appealing to me. St. DePaul makes it easy for charitable organizations to help people who are in need in their area. And 100% of the donations made to people go directly to the people who help. So I was talking to the director of our local missions, and she was talking about the fact that they frequently have people that come into their facility not knowing the community services that are available to them. And so a big part of their job is working with clients to understand what services or what help may be available in their area. And I think a lot of people are surprised to find out how many services actually exist, but unless you don't know what you don't know sometimes. And so St. Paul allows, fixes that problem, and it's doing so in an open source way. I have to tell you, I stumbled onto a Reddit post of his in where he was talking about the site that he was working on, and it sounds like he did the work in the course of a week. And I have to tell you, for a week's worth of work, this is incredible. And again, the level of impact that it potentially has to people that are looking for this kind of service, and not only does if it does exist, I'm not aware of, of something that, that's this inclusive. But the fact that it's open source means there isn't a glass ceiling. There isn't a point at which you're going to say, well, these services would be included, but these services will not. It's easy to put together something that focuses specifically on homelessness or specifically on you know healthcare, specifically on assistance. But to have a site and a platform that allows people to engage with each other and then discover the services that they're looking for, I think is truly fantastic. And again, somebody who works part-time with a food pantry, I'm well aware of the struggle that it is to try to get the message out to people because frequently you're talking about uh, a demographic of people that doesn't necessarily have the best access to search stuff and doesn't necessarily know what they're looking for. So I I would invite you to check this out. You can learn more at St. DePaul.com. 
Dot org. It's called St. DePaul, and it's an assistance center, again, named after St. DePaul, known for having dedicated his life uh, to, to helping poor people. And uh, essentially a location-based Craigslist where people can uh, post the services that they have available or that they're affiliated with. And then other people can go to that site and they can discover services and say, hey, this is the area I'm in. What's available around me? Now, he's actively looking for help. And so if you have skills if you have development skills or if you wanted to get involved or if you want to donate, he is specifically asking for help both in the way of either funding or in the way of if you have some development skills that he could take advantage of. He's saying that they are, I think it's, uh, get it wrong now, Jenga, I think, is what he's looking for. And he has, anyway, you can go check it out uh, on his GitHub. He has all of the source code for the website listed as well as a way to get in contact with him. Um, so yeah, check it out and, and let me know what you think. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to carefully watch this project as well as others like it. A huge thanks to people like My- Michael Johnson for putting this out. He's working on putting together or incorporating a nonprofit and that's going to allow him to take some donations and fund this. But at the moment, this is a project out of his out of his heart. It's it's a project of love and and an opportunity to go give back to people. And so as we kind of get into the Christmas season and there as you kind of move around and see more generosity in the air and and might feel pulled to help out with some of these things, this is a great way to either get in contact with a place in your area that is doing things to help people that are less privileged. It's an opportunity for you to list those services that are there, or it's an opportunity for you as a geek to go in and contribute to a project that really matters, that's making a difference in people's lives. It invites people to make changes. Uh, and again, they're actively looking for help. So St. DePaul, uh, check it out. If you, and I'm also interested do you have an open source project, either something that you found or something that you have come across that is working towards bettering a particular cause? We talk about fun. I don't want to say goofy. I don't want to undersell the value of a good utility because they're very useful, particularly to us that work in the IT industry all the live long day. The more tools we have, sometimes the ability to work smarter instead of harder is greatly appreciated. But when I come across this, it it does. It kind of has an extra guttural punch to it because it's real lives that are potentially impacted. And so the source code and the, the monetary contributions that would go to something like this I can see making a real difference in someone's lives. If just a few people even use the site and we're connected with a resource in their area drastically changes their life, right? When you don't have to think about where your next meal is coming from or when you don't have to think about where you're going to sleep that night. Or the thing I like here is giving people the tools to help them get themselves out of a bad situation. So doing things like linking to new job skills. How many people would have a new job if they only had the technical resources to be connected with a place that they can go use a word processor and fill out a resume or have a permanent address that they can have mail delivered to and from so that they can apply for jobs and do those things. And Michael does a really great job. It's clear that he has a passion for helping people that are struggling, people that are in need. And so a lot of these needs are addressed right on his site and and in the individual categories. So I've I've made a single post for for our food pantry that's here in Grand Forks. And so I would invite you to do the same if you know of a resource that's in your area. This kind of drives traffic to the site, legitimizes it, and allows people to start to get the word out that, hey, this is a resource and it's available to people that are potentially looking for it. So if that's you and you need some help, uh, 
by all means do that. And if you can afford to help somebody or if you can afford to help the site, uh, all of those things will contribute to the project and, and allow it to take off. This is something I'd really, really like to see go forward. And I've not seen anything in the proprietary world. There are individual community resource sites that are run by city or state governments. There's federal programs, and all of those have their own interface in which you can interact with it. But I've yet to see a open source, top to bottom solution that addresses this problem. And Michael Johnson has nailed this. So we'll have complete notes for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. What do you look for when you're looking for a fast, reliable, cross-platform video editor? For me, I look for Caden Live, and they've just recently released 22.12, and it's awesome. Uh, among the changes is what Caden Live developers are calling a major overhaul to the guide marker system. Now, Caden Live lets users add markers, bookmarks of sorts, that allowed the user to annotate and pinpoint a specific part of their project. So this comes into play particularly when you have an incredibly large project. And oftentimes what will happen with large video projects is you divide the work up among a bunch of people. And so you'll have two or three camera people that will go out and they'll be collecting different footage. If you're doing an interview, oftentimes they'll be like the main camera and the backup or the second camera, and then you'll have somebody going around and collecting B-roll. But all of that footage comes back into the edit bay at the very end, and you kind of lay the whole project out. And so what you end up doing is bouncing within the project to smaller subsections of the project. So we're going to talk about this interview with this thing. And then we did this feature segment that talked about that. And so you have all of these little mini projects inside of a larger product. And where? The markers and annotations come in as it helps you keep things straight. It also allows you to jump anywhere in the project instantaneously. And so you can have a list of where everything began or your chapters or however it is you want to organize your project. And then using uh, that uh, that guide marker system, you can open it up and jump to any part of the project very quickly and efficiently. Well, the new guides doc is now available in the UI in Caden 22.12, and this supports quickly filtering between different markers and guides. It works with keyboard navigation and supports many custom categories. Three of Caden Live's audiograph filters are keyframable in this release, and additionally, developers have made it easier to copy and paste keyframes. So now in Caden Live 22.12, the traditional Control C and Control V shortcuts uh, will work by clicking on the new copy and paste buttons added to the effects keyframe bar. Some other changes are the option to remove all clips after a playhead, which I have to tell you, when I first read that, I thought that sounds like that could be very dangerous. The ability to set a maximum size for cached data, the option to hide the menu and enable a hamburger menu in a toolbar. I would think this would be particularly useful to you if you're the kind of person that doesn't need to go into the menu very often, but you might want some of those options available. You can condense down and use less screen real estate with still not losing access to some of those options. A more informative, what's this tool tip? So these are the little text tips that you'll see appear around the application. You can hover over and click on it and it'll give you more information as to what that specific tool or area of the application does. They have cleaned up and worked on the settings page as well as a color picker that now works with Wayland. Uh, 
They've added pipe wire as an SDL output, and they've added a setting to disable the audio capture countdown. Now, weirdly enough, the my favorite thing about the latest version of Caden Live is not the new guides. It's actually the ability to remove space after the playhead. Again, coming back to this idea of larger projects, when you have a larger project and you have a bunch of different clips that are laid out all throughout the project, oftentimes what I will do is I will lay them out a long ways away from each other. I'll put like 10 minutes in between each one of the clips. Why? Because it gives me breathing room when I'm actually doing the editing. I'm going to trim these down. I'm going to move this over. I want to add that clip there. Having a large amount of space in between the dedicated portions of the project allows you to go back in and, again, work on smaller portions of the project. The problem with doing that is you get to the end and you have all of your clips have white space in between them or black space, dead space, whatever you want to call it, in between the clips. Now, the old-fashioned way is you drag the first clip to the very end, butt it up against the front of the project timeline, and then just start moving the rest of them until they all line up. Caden Live with 22.12 has introduced an option to remove the white space after the playhead. So you you, dra- you line that up with the first clip, drag that to the front of your project, place your uh, playhead somewhere in that clip, and then just say remove all the white space after this, and it will do that. Again, there's an option to remove all the clips after that as well, and I I I understand why it's there. I hope it asks very clearly to make sure that that's what you want to do or that you use that option sparingly. Uh, you can learn more uh, about this at cadenlive.org. I can't tell you the difference in landscape that we have even five or seven years ago on Linux. There was a time when doing professional video editing on Linux simply wasn't possible. And then it became possible if you were willing to use open source tools. But that was a far cry better than where we were previously Because previously, even if you were willing to use proprietary tools, you couldn't run it on a free and open source operating system. And so you had to resort to something like Windows or Mac OS. And then we got software that was proprietary that worked on Linux. So that's great. It's a step in the right direction. Now, at least the operating system is secure and stable and is talking to the hardware and is completely open source. But the application running on top still wasn't. With Caden Live and even OpenShot to a lesser degree, Things have gotten much, much better. This is a really fantastic experience, and I would go as so far as to say I miss nothing about proprietary video editing suites. And I've had people that have come in that have spent a lot of time in programs like Adobe Premiere, and they sit down at front of Caden Live and they feel at home. One of the best things that Caden Live does is Inkscape does this too, by the way. They allow you to pick up the shortcuts of their proprietary alternative. So you can open Caden Live and set the keyboard shortcuts to match that of Adobe Audition. And you can set the keys just like you can set the keyboard shortcuts in Inkscape to match that of Adobe's, uh, you know, one-to-one. So they, they allow you to do some of that so that you can take somebody that is used to using the proprietary alternative and they can step into a open source alternative and know exactly what they're doing. So uh, it's 22.12. It's available for download. Uh, you can read more at cadenlive.org. They've got a really fantastic write-up on it. And of course, we'll have all of this linked in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Linux Libra 6.1. This was put out by somebody named Alexandre Oliva, and it was announced today as the release of the general availability for GNU Linux Libra 6.1 kernel for those that are looking for 100% freedom of their GNU Linux computers. Uh, 
I have to tell you, I, I struggle a little bit. I remember when there was a market for buying ThinkPads, and to be fair, this market still exists. You buy the ThinkPad, and they'll flash open source bio software on it, or UAFI software, core boot, those kinds of things. And they try to open the device up as much as they possibly can. And I think for a long time, we kind of give a pass to devices with low-level firmware for reasons of, well, Intel's never going to get on board, so why bother? And Qualcomm is never going to get on board, so why bother? And I don't know if that's where we want to set the bar. Is that where we want to set the bar for open source, that we, we hold our software developers and our operating system software developers to one standard, but when it gets down to the microcode and the actual devices that we give a free pass on? That seems disingenuous to me. It seems inconsistent to me. At the same time, I'm well aware that every computer I've had in the last probably 10 years, I've never bothered to see what proprietary blobs are running my Wi-Fi card or my Bluetooth card or my you know wireless WAN card. No idea. And frankly, it didn't really affect my life all that much. So if that's you, if you're the kind of person that seeks out free top to bottom freedom respecting free as in beer and free as in freedom if you're the kind of person that seeks those kinds of things out i want to hear from you does running a libra or full freedom respecting kernel have any value to you and why i want to understand how you're using it and why you're using it so this is based off the linux 6.1 kernel series and the gnu linux libra 6.1 kernel adjust several drivers that are needed to de-blob due to code rearrangement and it includes things like the amd AMD GPU and 1950 DRM, the BRCM FMC, Intel ACPI sound, the Realtek R8188EU, and RTW 8852C Wi-Fi cards. It's also deblobbed the RTW 8852B Wi-Fi driver and cleaning up the code for drivers used for the TN6000 TV card, as well as the AV7110, the SP8870, and the CPIA2. Uh, all of these media cards are things that they've been able to come up with completely freedom respecting uh, replacements for the blobs. Uh, other than that, it tracks the Linux 6.1 kernel. And so all of the features that you would ordinarily get in the Linux 6.1 kernel, you're going to have available to you in the 6.1 Libra kernel. So you can, uh, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can read more about it. It's, 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 I'm really fascinated by this. Again, I really like the idea that we are rewarding and being consistent on our values. If we say we want access to the source code and we say that's what gives us true freedom and autonomy from corporate influence and all of those sorts of things, I think it's time that we start raising the bar and asking hardware manufacturers to support these sorts of things. I like the fact that this project is out there, even if I don't have an immediate use for it. So today, as I sit here, I don't know that I could look you in the eye and tell you, yeah, the most important thing to me is to make sure that uh, everything top to bottom on my laptop is freedom respecting and I have access to the source code. The reality is I'm never going to go through the source code. I don't have time for it and I wouldn't understand it anyway. So I would have to hire a developer that could help me understand the nuances of machine code. And so I get that far down the rabbit hole and I go, who really cares? I'll just instead, Linux works just fine on my box. Has worked for a number of years. I'm not sure that I think in some ways this is a solution in search for a problem. But again, I'm aware of the inconsistency there. I'm aware of how disingenuous that might come off. So if you're a person that is running a Libra or full freedom respecting kernel or have a desire to do so, I'd love to hear from you at live at asknoahshow.com. 
We'll have all of this linked for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Tor has been bundled for Ukraine. So Tor browser version 12 has been released for support with Albanian and Ukrainian languages. This is the first time. Now, the latest Tor uh, browser is specifically packaged with a version of Firefox known as Firefox 102 ESR. And it does all of the hard work for setting up a Tor connection for you. And so my question to you is, are you looking to increase your privacy or do you just want access to onion sites? Why is it that you use Tor or why don't you use Tor? For me, a lot of times what I have come across is if I don't have to sign into a website, if I don't have to give up that tracking information to my ISP, I'll choose not to. It's not that I'm trying to hide anything. I'm not. Oftentimes what I'm doing is very public. Sometimes it's actually going out over the air. But at the same time, I don't think the ISP needs any more information than they abs- than, than I absolutely have to give them. Sometimes, as it relates to things like banking sites, I don't have a choice. If I try to access my online banking portal from a Tor connection or a VPN connection, it blocks the traffic and it won't allow me to do so. The bank already knows who I am, so I don't see it as much of a privacy violation if the bank knows that I'm connecting from an internet source that they know who I am. The bank knows who I am anyway. But when I'm performing Google searches or when I'm reading something on the internet or I'm browsing news sites, why in the world would I want to give up privacy to those sites? There's no good reason to do so. And previously, getting connected to Tor was kind of a pain in the patoot. You had to go download the Tor connection software. You had to spin the connection software up, and then you could open your browser and you'd be able to browse the site. But there's a problem. The problem is your browser itself can give you away by the unique fingerprint that it has. You can learn more about this at CoverYourTracks.EFF.org. They have a free tester that you can test your browser to see how uniquely identifiable your fingerprint is. But what you'll find is, unless you're using a very specific custom configuration of your browser, In general, between cookies, specific extensions, things like your screen resolution, information about your PC that's transmitted to the website server, a a person whose site you visit can collect an awful lot of information about you. And then once that unique fingerprint is established, it can track you from place to place. The Tor browser eliminates this problem because it's no longer using the built-in system browser when you're launching Tor, but instead it's using its own version of Firefox, specifically a version of Firefox with uh, extended support. Um, And so... The uh, the extended support is what's no, what what's meant by the ESR, and so Firefox 102 has that extended support release, and it launches a browser that has a custom little window, so it doesn't translate your it doesn't transmit your real screen resolution. It also doesn't have any ability to store cookies long term. As soon as you close the session, it's going to dump everything, and by default, Firefox is configured with some of the anti tracking protections. Now, you can certainly use that on a regular site, but Tor is going to obscure it even more. I often see a debate come up anytime I bring up Tor. We get questions either into the show or people ask me personally, well, why not a VPN? What is the advantage of Tor over a VPN? And the truth is, oftentimes, VPNs do exactly what you expect them to do. You pay a little bit of money a month. They give you a simple open VPN file. You load it into your VPN profile. And when you're connected, you're coming out of a data center and nobody knows the difference between you coming out of the data center and somebody else. And there are plenty of uh, VPN providers like private internet access that provide access to a VPN without 
uh, any logging and they have a long track history in the courts of doing so. And so that works for you if you have the budget, because one of the things that you'll find when you get into the VPN space is they all cost money and there are some that don't cost money. But the ones that don't cost money often come with a different cost, usually associated with the form of security. And so what they'll do is they'll actively set up the worst ones, actively set up a honeypot of sorts that will collect your information or try to scam payment information out of you. And of course, that's hugely problematic. Some of the best ones, if you're looking for lower end price VPN, would be something like Proton VPN, which is included if you have a subscription to Proton Mail. So Tor, I like largely because it's open source top to bottom and they don't charge anybody anything. You can just go download the Tor package. You can run it on your machine and it's going to work flawlessly for you. The cost is free. And again, it's open source top to bottom. So this is a particularly helpful tool for people that live in countries with oppressive governments. And that certainly comes to mind when we start talking about Ukraine as they're engaged in their current conflict with Russia. A lot of Ukrainian citizens are finding their it to be an absolute necessity to be able to get onto the internet and not paint target on their back and tour and other projects like them allow people to do stuff like that. So a huge thanks to all of the volunteers at tour that were able to get it translated into Albanian and Ukrainian highly recommend you go check out the latest release of tour. You'll find more at uh, tourproject.org. And of course we'll have the links in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com to include the cover your tracks EFF link. Apple is rolling out encryption for iCloud. Apple's on-device encryption is strong, but especially some sensitive information such as photos and backups in iCloud have continued to be vulnerable to government demands and hackers. Users who opt into Apple's new proposed feature, which the company calls Advanced Data Protection for iCloud, will be protected even if there's a data breach in the cloud or a government demand. If a breach happens even within Apple, the rogue employee won't have access to the data because it's end-to-end encrypted. Apple said today that the feature will be available to the U.S. users by the end of the year and will roll out to the rest of the world in early 2023. And my question to you is, do you trust Apple after they've changed their direction or have they become everything their 1986 ad warned against? Remember, it doesn't seem to me like if you have a change in policy, a change in direction, that that represents some sort of altruistic, oh, we saw the light, we were wrong. You might recall a few, maybe a year or so ago, maybe within this year, last year, Apple came out with a proposed feature that would scan client-side devices for objectionable material. And so that meant that code would run on your phone and look for photos or videos that, that Apple found to be offensive content, and then that would report you to authorities. And the whole idea was centered around this idea that we're going to help the children, save the children, all the things. I understand trying to protect children from exploitation, but there are different ways to go about doing that. And so it was the wrong call from Apple. Unsurprisingly, when Apple announced this feature, it did not go over well because a large portion of their user base are people that bought into their ecosystem because they wanted to be free of tracking and privacy violations. And so this was the promise that Apple had made them. And so as they came back on that promise, they faced harsh criticism. So Apple has dropped it and said, we're not doing that. Uh, They dropped their plans to install the photo scanning app on devices, which would have inspected private photos and iCloud and iMessages. 
And the software is, uh, again, what's known as client-side scanning and was intended to locate child abuse imagery and uh, and report it to authorities when a user's information is end-to-end encrypted. They just don't have the ability to do that. But I would I would be quick to point out to you, you are one software update away, one software update away from Apple making a different decision, going a different direction. And all of a sudden, if that key is available to access content on the device, you better believe the key will be available to unlock the device to Apple should they push a software update to it because it's there on the, the, the phone somewhere. The music in our ears means we're out of time as we wrap up. I want to thank you for joining us. We record this uh this podcast live on Tuesday evenings at 6 p.m. You can learn more at podcast.asknoahshow.com. While you're there, you'll find all of the articles and references that I use to make the show. You can follow us on Twitter if you want the latest. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show is at Ask Noah Show. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. <laughs>